Welcome to The Hendy Show, a podcast exploring the why behind some of today's most intriguing ideas, businesses, and personalities to inform and inspire the best version of you. I'm your host, Amanda Hendy. Today's episode is with Kareen Carmi, the co-founder and CEO of Origin, an authority in the field of pelvic floor health and a leading provider in pelvic floor therapy. Your pelvic floor is a crucial component to your overall well-being at all stages of your life, from bladder and bowel control to pregnancy prep and postpartum care to menopause and perimenopause and even sex. Yes, strengthening your pelvic floor can lead to more pleasurable sex and orgasms. And no, it's not just about the kegel. Our conversation today is not just informative, but transformative, offering essential insights and actionable advice. Kareen brings a wealth of knowledge and a compassionate perspective to a subject that's often clouded in silence and stigma. So if you enjoyed this episode, please help us grow by subscribing, liking, sharing with friends, and leaving a review. Thank you so much for listening and for your support. And here's to continuing our journey of learning, growth, and self-improvement together. Welcome to the show. Uh, We were first introduced years ago, pre-pandemic, when you were in the early days of Origin. And it's been really great to watch Origin continue to grow since then. And I'm excited to have you here today. Well, thank you. I know it feels like a millennia ago. (laughs) So much has changed. All right. So let's dig in. So Origin provides physical therapy for the whole body, uh, including a particular focus on the pelvic floor for Mm -hmm. women and mothers. And I want to start with a super basic question because I feel like I can't be alone in it. What is your pelvic floor and why is it important? (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you asked because while I hope we live in a world in the future where everyone knows about all of our body parts, um, there's been a lot of shame and stigma and lack of information, particularly for women, but truly for everyone about the pelvic floor. Um, So to level set, the pelvic floor is at the center of your body. It is the set of muscles, tissues, and ligaments that hold up your organs. Um, It's really responsible for sexual function, for bowel and bladder control, um, for actually blood flow throughout uh, your body as well and your lips. Um, and, And really, you know, when you think about it, it's while we're connecting the pelvic floor to issues around reproductive health, um, pelvic floor is actually related to um, just every stage of life and can present challenges when uh, it doesn't, you know, work as well as we hope it would. Um, like any other body part, you know, like if our back hurts um, or our shoulder is in pain or our jaw is clenched and we're having some TMJ, um, and so what pelvic floor dysfunction can look like um, is everything from pain with sex to leaking, um, incontinence, um, to prolapse, uh, and much, much more. And we'll talk about, you know, what that can look like as well. Nice. How did this become a topic of interest for you? Yeah. You <laughs> founding <Origin? laughs> Good question. Um, it's funny because I didn't even know I had a pelvic floor until my early thirties, despite actually experiencing pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, so when I was in my early twenties, I started having painful sex. Um, not really sure why it happened, but you know, one in five women have chronic painful sex. Um, probably the numbers are much higher given the lack of research, uh, around women's health topics. And I was in New York at the time and I was getting care at one of the best institutions, Cornell med. And yet, um, there was no diagnosis for what was going on for me, no real plan of care, 
They're like, try these creams. Um, they gave me a biopsy, which actually was the wrong thing to do um, for this kind of pain. And so I was kind of living with this on and off. It would get better, it would get worse um, for nearly a decade. And I moved back to LA uh, about a decade later um, where I grew up and I reconnected with an old friend who was getting care for her pelvic floor after she gave birth. A lot of people learn about their pelvic floor after they give birth because there's obviously a lot of pressure on that area of your body, um, especially if you deliver a child vaginally. And so she was getting postpartum care for a host of issues like incontinence, pain with sitting, um, and pain with sex. And I was like, well, I wonder if this will work for this chronic issue I've had. And we both ended up getting care in this local clinic and it was life-changing for the first time. I had a diagnosis. I had a plan of care. Um, it was really simple. Um, you know, for a while I was just actually learning how to breathe properly, uh, diaphragmatically because I was holding so much tension in my pelvic floor that it was creating anticipatory pain, um, with any penetration, even a tampon usage. And, um, it, was really incredible to be able to see just how little you could do, but to get to this really, you know, amazing outcome of a pain-free sex life, um, which is truly a game changer um, for me and for many more people. Um, and so that was kind of my personal connection. Um, I had been working in healthcare and tech most of my career. Um, Origin is the fifth startup I've been involved in, the third venture-backed, you know, the first in this role. Um, but it was starting to really uncover how massive the need is um, for women and really people of all sexes and genders across the country um, and really across the world. And so that was the the personal connection, um, you know, because I don't know if you know this, but I recently kind of started looking at these numbers. Pelvic floor dysfunction is more common than hypertension, diabetes, seasonal allergies. I mean, like this is widespread um, wow. and there's really no solution um, of scale yet, you know, except for what we're doing right now. Wow. Yeah. No, I had no idea the numbers were that big. Um, it's insane. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's wild. Um, you, you mentioned painful sex. And again, this might be an obvious question, but if you're, you know, in the early days of having sex and all you've experienced is painful sex, maybe you don't know, like what, what yeah. makes it like so painful? You know, there's different types of, um, there's various types of pain with sex. And so I don't want to overgeneralize, but I can tell you from my experience, mm -hmm. um, what I had um, is a form of vulvodynia. Um, and there's, you know, pain that can happen, you know, at insertion, at deeper forms of penetration. Um, people have pain with orgasm. So there's a whole spectrum of the type of pain you can have. Um, what I think happened for me, although it's really hard to exactly pinpoint, is I had an infection and then had, you know, one, um, one time with my partner where it started hurting. And just like, I don't know if you've ever learned about anticipatory pain, um, where you can almost experience pain in anticipation of what could be pain. Your body mm. clenches, your jaw clenches, your shoulders, you know, go up to <laughs> go up as well. Um, your body is preparing for something and bracing and it creates this pain response cycle. Um, that's really hard to break without, you know, really understanding what's going on. Um, and also some of that deep breathing, diaphragmatic work, really retraining your mind um, that this is not, you know, a painful thing. There's a tool called a dilator, um, and there's different sizes. They look like everything from the size of a pencil to a dildo, um, and you can retrain your body to not associate that uh, penetration, even a tampon, as a painful sensation. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, your mind probably 
obviously then plays a huge part in it as well. It's like they say, like when you see a car, like if you're about to get in a car accident and you tense up, usually your injuries are worse because you're kind of. Exactly. Yeah. This is why I don't, you know, dive or jump off cliffs because I'm always like, oh, I'm bracing, you know, but um, it was, it was interesting for me to learn much more deeply about the mind-body connection um, from my own experience. I also have chronic GI issues. And I think for so long, we thought that the mind, you know, the brain was controlling the body, but we know how bi-directional it can be. Um, And so, you know, sometimes the body is then sending the signal to the brain to say, hey, you know, this could be painful and it creates this cycle. Um, And even, you know, when you think about conditions like depression and anxiety, um, there's research showing a high correlation of depression and anxiety with people who actually experience incontinence. Um, and so it's it's not causal. We don't have that data. Um, but you can kind of understand these, these issues are deeply, deeply connected. Um, and particularly in areas around pelvic health where there's been shame or stigma or this perception that this is just the way it is. Um, I think the stat is about one in three patients with incontinence don't end up getting care. And they think that their solution for the rest of their life is going to be an adult diaper. And it's not to say that we don't need to have, you know, really supportive tools outside of PT or other interventions. But um, if you think that's your lifestyle and your way of life, like that can be really traumatic for many, many people. And so while our approach in physical therapy is not a mental health intervention, um, we know that there's really, really positive mental health benefits as well. So you mentioned painful sex and incontinence. Mm -hmm. What are some other common um, symptoms or issues with the pelvic floor? Um, Prolapse is another common issue, um, particularly among women who and people with vaginal anatomy who've given birth. Um, That's when your pelvic organs can descend, um, you know, uh, just from a little bit to a lot through uh, your vaginal, uh, through your vagina. um, And it can be really uncomfortable. Um, You've seen surgery is needing intervention. Um, It's incredibly common, particularly with old age. Um, About one in two women end up having some form of prolapse. Um, Depending on when it presents and the severity, PT is usually the first line of treatment, but oftentimes patients are told they need surgery right away. And then you end up in this vicious cycle if the surgeries don't work. And, you know, just like most surgeries, you need prehab and rehab. Um, And so, um, it makes me pretty angry that that's the state of you know the medical system today, but we're working on it. Um, those are, I'd say, the three really big buckets. Um, there's a lot, a lot of other issues that you know we're seeing and treating. Um, for example, chronic UTIs can often actually be um, a pelvic floor dysfunction and not a bacterial infection, um, and your your body's in spasm oh, in an interesting way. Um, hip and back pain is often comorbid with pelvic pain, and so. Um, you're seeing this persistent issue, um, particularly among women and people with vaginal anatomy, it presents differently. Um, and so we often look at that whole body approach. Um, there's a lot of work around pregnancy and postpartum. Um, how do you prepare your body for labor and delivery? And then whether you've had a C-section or vaginal uh, birth, how do you recover um, from that? And particularly C-section, um, pelvic floor PT can be really powerful in helping you um, with scar mobilization and, you know, actually regaining core strength um, or for women who've given birth um, and have had DRA, so diastasis recti, how do you rebuild your core strength as well? Um, really, I mean, there's the list is too long for even our website. Um, so <laughs> we can go much deeper. Um, 
But I would also maybe just note, if this is for anyone listening, if you're experiencing endometriosis or fibroids or other um, other women's health issues that create pain, there's usually um, some support that PT can offer as well, or pelvic floor therapy, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you 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 mentioned uh, older women and yeah. having to uh, get surgery to f- uh, fix. I'm sorry, what was it again? Prolapse. The actual prolapse, the actual term. Yeah. Okay. And I, I have an older woman in my life who went through that exact experience. And I mentioned, um, you know, I was interviewing you and, you know, talking about pelvic floor and the, and PT and all of that. And she was really upset to learn that that was even an option. Like she didn't yeah. have a doctor even bring that up. It was just like, oh, you're old. This is what we do to you. And the surgery was really intense for her with a lot of complications. So, um, you know, what What kind of, why isn't this a topic that we know that much about and that um, I feel like is probably often ignored by the healthcare system? Yeah, I mean- it breaks my heart to hear that. And I'm just like thinking about that patient's experience. And um, unfortunately, she's not alone. You know, even my experience, I had a lack of a diagnosis or a real plan of care for a decade. Luckily, I didn't have to have surgery. Um, You know, even with incontinence, you're seeing when we're not treating incontinence earlier in life, it can create even more issues, you know, as we age. And um, one of the number one drivers of women, you know, ending up in assisted living when they're older is incontinence and um, fear of tripping and spilling. And so there's like, there's so many issues related to this. I don't think, you know, doctors have malintent by any means. There's just been mm-hmm. a really big lack of both research, as we know, um, women's bodies were not necessary to be used in clinical research in 1993. Um, there's also a lack of education in medical schools around women's health and even in PT schools around women's health. Obviously, that's changing. Um, I think. Some of the studies show that there's sometimes maybe one course in medical schools that, you know, you take around these issues. Um, And oftentimes it's really about the exposure that you have to these types of providers in your residency. So, you know, if you're lucky, you get exposed. And if not, then you might not know what are the other options. Um, I would say that it's changing and I have a lot of confidence and excitement around that, um, probably for a couple of reasons. You're starting to see one, consumers demand more. over the last few years, the rise in um, search for pelvic floor has increased by 300%. Um, and so patients are seeking out information themselves. There's you know, TikTok influencers with millions of followers who are talking about this. And so um, there's kind of a big surge of consumer awareness that's shifting the medical community. Um, and then there's companies like ours who are taking this therapy and bringing it into the mainstream, not just through awareness, but through access. And about 80% of the pelvic floor PT industry is out of network, um, which means that even if a doctor wanted to refer, oftentimes they don't have a provider who's affordable for their patient that they can send them to. Um, Or if they want to send them in the health system into a hospital, um, there could be a six-month wait list. And so we're really trying to think about access as a way to actually increase also the usage of this care. Um, So I... I'm livid most of the time because it's, you know, really crazy. <laughs> this is where we are in 2023. Um, but I know that it's shifting and, you know, most providers we talk to would be thrilled to refer to someone if they had someone, you know, 
in network and that they could trust from a quality standpoint. And I, I feel like this is probably also an area where, um, and I'm sure most women have had this experience, unfortunately, where you go to a doctor and and you explain your pain and you're kind of just ignored almost, like mm-hmm. told it's in your head or, um, you know, it's just, you know, part of it. But what what advice do you have for, you know, somebody experienced the pain? How can they be the best advocate for themselves? It's a really good question. I think if you ever feel truly dismissed by your provider, you know, seek a second opinion. Um, even if it's, you know, that's not the provider you're ultimately going to end up with. I think feeling comfortable um, having real conversations with your doctor um, about the most intimate issues in your life is incredibly critical and that is their responsibility. And if you don't feel safe, um, that's probably not the doctor for you if you find someone that you can connect with better. So that'd be one. Um, and then two, I would say is really thinking about seeking referrals. Um, you know, I, I would always recommend if you're having pelvic floor dysfunction before going down a rabbit hole of maybe buying a device, there's a lot of stuff out there that's being marketed to patients that's, you know, buy this tool and it's going to solve your problems. Um, really think about just even having one visit with a pelvic floor PT, even virtually. Um, we actually do a lot of virtual care and we know it's incredibly effective um, for our patients. And it can be very useful so that you don't end up doing something that can, can create harm. Um, what's really interesting is the number one exercise a lot of people think about for their pelvic floor is the Kegel. It's the, you know, like, let me clench yes. the muscles and let it go. Um, I think there was a Sex and the City episode about it recently. So it's having a moment. And that can be really helpful as a exercise, but it can also be the wrong exercise if you're having chronic tension or painful sex um, or depending on where you are in your recovery because you can create an exacerbated issue. And so in that situation, just actually getting a clear understanding of what's going on for you can help put you on the right path um, so that you can understand, do I need one-on-one care? Is this something I can treat on my own? Is this something I just do in my workout class? Like, how do I understand, you know, what the path is here? Um, It was really interesting for me. I recently had a baby about a year ago and I, you know, despite being in this field, I had no idea what it meant to push. And, you know, you think about pushing as something that's like forceful and there's obviously a lot of force with it, but the pushing exercise is actually all about lengthening and learning how to like relax and let go with force. And so I ended up doing a lot of practice work before with my PT to really make sure I could build that muscle memory in too. And so just even understanding those nuances, um, and we're talking a lot about pain, which is really critical because we all want to live, you know, pain free. Um, but I'm also really mm-hmm. excited about the opportunity for more pleasure for patients and for people. Um, and you know, just like a bicep curls and releases, you know, when you think about the pelvic floor, it's about strength and and like holding intention and then lengthening, and that's actually the full spectrum of movement you need for orgasm. Um, and so this is not just about you know getting rid of the pain. It's also about how do we, you know, experience the full spectrum of pleasure that's available to us. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think everybody yeah. would like to yeah. know, have the most <laughs> pleasurable sex they can. Exactly. It's <laughs> a great, great point. <laughs> um, yeah. And you mentioned uh, having a child and congratulations. Thank um, you. 
I'm actually exploring having a child right now and trying to get myself in the best shape as possible for that in all areas of my life. And so, um, yeah, what what would you recommend somebody who's either you know about to conceive or already pregnant? How can how can pelvic floor therapy help them? Yeah. Um, well, I'm sending you good vibes and my best wishes for your journey. You. And <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I don't want to like over-engineer and right. There's so much that we can do. And I think I even went down this rabbit hole of like, mm-hmm. let me get all my lists for every month. And so I don't want folks to feel like they are underprepared or that, you know, the worst case outcome is going to happen to them because the reality is, um, and I had to learn this lesson myself, like there is always room for repair and healing. So even if you did nothing to prepare and nothing in your pregnancy and you had, you know, knock on something, a very challenging birth, like there's still path to repair and recovery after that. And so I'll start there. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we could wave a magic wand, I would want every patient, you know, as early in their first trimester, but if they're not feeling well, their second trimester to start to actually understand their baseline and to start to build um, both a connection with their pelvic floor muscles around that. Um, strength and lengthening um, so that there's both uh, prepare for labor and delivery, but for afterwards, um, there's better muscle tension that can support um, whether there's issues around incontinence or prolapse, um, you know, really helping that part of your body um, kind of recover more quickly to whatever extent that's possible. Um, And then I would say there's also a lot of work around just strength and safe core strength, um, learning how to manage the pain of pregnancy. You know, a lot of women have sciatica or back pain or hip pain or pelvic girdle pain. I mean, you're carrying a lot of weight. I had, it was like my bowling ball, you know, coming around me all day. And, um, and it was really, really painful towards the end for me, I could barely walk. And so figuring out how I can maintain movement, um, and diminish that pain is also something we do a lot with patients. Um, and then afterwards, obviously, um, it should really be standard of care that everyone is getting at least one pelvic floor check-in in addition to that six week, um, visit with their OB. There's very little done in that visit around pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, and most OBs are not f- doing full pelvic floor exams from the musculoskeletal standpoint. And so unless you're bringing up issues, they might not be checking for those issues um, around prolapse or incontinence um, or you know pain with sex. Oftentimes you're not having sex before that appointment. So that issue is not even being caught then. Um, so I would just say those are some of the things. And again, I wanted to start. There's a lot you can do, but also know that whatever you can do or wherever you start is is a great starting point. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. And going going back to the actual exercises, um, you mentioned the Kegel, and it's funny you said that because the woman I mentioned earlier um, was like, is there more to do than the Kegel? Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing she had ever heard about. So could you, with you know, you don't have to go into exact details, but could you give a high level um, kind of overview of like what what this therapy actually look, looks like if you, whether you're coming into Origin or you're doing something remotely yeah. and any advice for people to just, you know, do start doing things at home? Yeah. Um, well, I would say the the... PT toolkit, which is really the same if you're talking about pelvic floor therapy or even general PT, we often think a lot about manual therapy. So someone's hands are on your body, but that's really one subset of a much broader set of therapies that a PT can provide. Um, I think in women's health, one of the most important pieces of that toolkit is actually education. 
because most of us don't know the difference between our vulva and our vagina. We don't have any baseline education of, do I have a overly tight pelvic floor or a weak pelvic floor? So actually just understanding our bodies is really the step one towards any path of strength or healing. Um, and there's a lot of work we can do one-on-one. And then we built out our own resource library to provide patients with information based on what's going on for them. I think it can be incredibly therapeutic to understand yourself. Um, and I know for me, just even having like, there's a name to what I'm experiencing and it's real, yeah, um, you know, is a huge relief. Um, so I'd say education is probably the number one intervention we need to be thinking about really seriously. Um, the second is therapeutic exercise. And so for some patients that could be the Kegel, it could be diaphragmatic breathing. Um, we have a, uh, our own exercise library of hundreds of exercises. So um, there's truly a lot that you can do. And some of it might look very similar to what you're doing in a, in a gym class, but it's actually very specifically tied to what's going on for you, whether that's pain reduction, um, you know, mobility or increasing function or, or pleasure or movement. Um, so I don't want to go into like, you know, I'm not going to give you the list of things, but I was even doing deadlifts, right. As part of what I needed to do, um, throughout my pregnancy. Mm. Um, so that was the exercise piece. Um, there is manual therapy, which can be done by a PT. There's also ways that a PT can train you on how to do that. Um, you know, you might've heard of, uh, how you can prepare, um, your, uh, perineal stretching for, uh, giving birth. And that can be done by yourself at home or with a partner. Um, so there's a lot kind of within that. And then depending on what's going on for you, there could be devices you can use, um, everything from vaginal weights to dilators, um, to TheraBands, right. That can really support your plan of care. Um, our clinical team is not as big believers in some of the um, vibrational devices or um, kind of Kegel trainers. I think there's definitely a place for that. But I, again, I'd really want any patient to have a conversation with a clinician before going down a specific rabbit hole of a device. Um, one, just so you're not spending a lot of money that you don't end up uh, needing to spend, but also to make sure that it's not going to exacerbate an issue that you're having. Yeah, I think that's a really great great point of an important point of like, don't trust Dr. Google on this kind of stuff. Yep. <laughs> it might, it might, the advice you get from Googling might be completely wrong. And like you said, wind up causing you more pain or aggravating a situation. Yeah. And a lot of these issues are very, you know, they're kind of overlapping. And so even for me, and again, I'm, you know, deep in the space, I was like, is this sciatica or is this you know, public girdle play, like what's going on here? And um, really just having clarity helped me make sure that I wasn't doing things that were going to, you know, create more harm or more pain down the line. Yeah. Um, I'm actually also curious because I, I, through my experience investing in a particularly, you know, working in the women's health space, um, I know that it can be really difficult to get information out there and get like, you know, market and advertise for things like origin um, because uh, like on social media, because they often flag, you know, words like vagina. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, I, I would love to hear your experience on that because I know part of your work is trying to get this information out there so people can make the best decisions for them. And, you know, like you said, like I, you know, get comfort in having a diagnosis and at least have understanding yeah. that what they're going through is real and legitimate. Um, but I know it can be a challenge to get that information out there. So has that gotten any yeah. better? Or? 
It's getting a little bit better. Um, so there's an organization called the Center for Intimacy Justice that uh, brought together a lot of women's health brands and sexual wellness brands. And we kind of collectively were trying to show the world, like, how crazy is this that you can advertise for erectile dysfunction and have really even vulgar <laughs> ads out there. And, you know, we had a post up about safe labor and delivery positions, and that was considered, you know, explicit content. And so there was a what? big mismatch. Yeah. Um, it's insane. And um, they put together a whole, you know, FTC complaint. Like they were, they were really going after Meta and other companies who it's just egregious, some of the policies and good progress. So Meta revised their policies and you're now allowed to use language, especially in the context of pain and dysfunction. Um, you're still not allowed to talk about pleasure, which I find... Um, problematic in many, many ways. Um, also because, you know, for women, the, the ways that we think about pleasure and arousal, um, are really different. Um, and again, not necessarily, um, all women, there's obviously a lot of variance and gender fluidity here as well, but there are, there are differences in, um, kind of pleasure and arousal. And so some techniques that, you know, would feel like, uh, pleasure, um, pushing anyways, Going down a rabbit hole, but um, that makes me upset. Uh, aside from that, though, I would say we're starting to see different policies on platforms like TikTok that are more open, um, and other channels can be really, really effective. So we're now getting hundreds of thousands of visits to our site every month, to our blog, through SEO, and our free educational content that's all evidence-based. Um, and there's really other ways that we can start to get information there, even through reaching out to medical doctors and providers. and I think for issues like this, you're often hearing about it from someone you trust. And so for us, we're trying to partner Mm -hmm. with those people, whether they're doctors, whether they're micro-influencers, or just our patients who've had really good experiences. And how do we empower each of those folks to be advocates for, you know, evidence-based high quality intervention, whether that's with us or, you know, anyone else in the industry. Good. I'm glad it's improving slightly. I know. Exactly. There's a lot of work to be done, but I'm happy that there's been some progress. Um, yeah. So, so far we've focused mostly on, or all exclusively on women. Um, mm-hmm. Should men, is this a topic of health for men? Like I have never heard a man talk about pelvic floor health. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. Um, there are, it's, it's a lower incidence rate of pelvic floor dysfunction among men. Um, you can have issues particularly related to um, prostate cancer recovery um, is one big area. Um, about one in nine exper- men experience painful sex, pelvic floor dysfunction, um, other issues, um, painful ejaculation as well, incontinence. So um, really similar issues, to be honest. And I do think that while there's a lot of shame and stigma around these issues among women, it can be even harder sometimes um, for some men because there's really mm-hmm. like no conversation happening um, in that regard. Um, there's also for the trans community, we, we offer gender affirming care, um, particularly around pre and post surgery for vaginoplasty, other issues. Um, and how do you make sure that we're supporting patients really of all genders and sexes? Um, we're founded to support, um, and you know, our vision is really around women and people with vaginal anatomy, but if our PTs have the expertise, um, and there's different levels of training, you know, for different types of issues, we'll obviously support patients, um, regardless of, uh, their gender or sexual um, background. That's amazing. 
can you are there any innovative technologies or techniques that are improving um, treatment or what what are you most excited about in this space? It's a great question. Um, you know, there's every year more and more devices out there and we're continuously reviewing all of them um, to see could this actually really augment plan of care. Um, verdict is still out, but there's been a few devices recently for incontinence um, and also painful penetration um, that our clinical team is excited about, but we're still kind of waiting to see the evidence there. Um, so as much as I, you know, warning folks around devices, I think there's going to be more improvement that can support patients. Um, it's early days for AI, but I do think that there's an opportunity around AI um, to be able to augment and support the education that patients are getting, um, particularly, you know, because there's only around 10,000 plus or minus providers who are experts in this care uh, across the country and 40 million women every year who have these issues. So we need to find ways to support even just that baseline education. So um, that's something we're working on um, right now. But to be honest, I wish we could wave a magic wand and there was like a technology solution that would make all these problems go away. Um, I think we have to really start, you know, at every stage of life, there's different needs and interventions, but I'm also excited about the future of what um, sex ed could look like for folks so that they're getting interventions mm-hmm. sooner um, and not waiting, you know, 10 years to experience issues before they're getting care. Um, you know, I think there's a misnomer that sex ed is really about intercourse um, or, you know, partnered uh, sex. Like we actually have a baseline gap um, for folks of all genders and sexes and understanding our bodies. And um, I think it's really a disservice to folks that they just don't know what their parts are even called. Like, how do you start to understand, you know, what your baseline is and what's normal functioning if you don't really know um, what your own anatomy is? Yep. And this has been a common through line. I've interviewed several people now in the, mostly in the fertility space. Um, and we've talked a lot about body part, like basic anatomy, body parts. Yeah. And the fact that we, we don't know, and myself included, there was so much about uh, reproduction and my own body that I didn't know early, you know, until my late thirties, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. And so you know, is partly why I want to have this podcast, why I, I want to interview people like you is to get this information out there and hopefully mm-hmm. get it, you know, to, to a younger generation earlier than you and I uh, learned it. I mean, um, amen, seriously. And I'm really, you know, I think what's been happening, if you look at the proliferation of women's health companies, sexual wellness brands, is that every phase of life that, you know, this generation is going through, they're like, whoa, this is the status quo. That is completely (laughs) unacceptable. (laughs) Um, Let's try to tackle it. Um, And I think the younger generation right now is probably even, you know, more livid and more um, unaccepting of that status quo. So I have a lot of faith, um, particularly, you know, the conversations they're having around sex and gender are far more nuanced than the ones you know, we were having, and I imagine um, that's opening up conversations around like understanding anatomy and being really clear um, and factual, and not um, only using hushed voices to talk about these things. Right. Yep. I agree. And they have so much more access to information than than exactly inside did. did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is double edged because there's a lot of um, misinformation out right. there from a healthcare standpoint, um, and I don't 
know what the answer is going to be there. You know, I'd, I'd still prefer to have the floodgates open in some cases because we know, you know, if I think about the policies that have been in place historically, um, if we were to start blocking content, it could be really, really challenging. Um, but that's why you need to have, you know, trusted sources, brands that really start to break through that clutter. And, you know, hopefully the platforms can also have some ways of identifying, you know, who you can trust just from a scientific evidence-based background. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Before we go, I just wanted to make sure, is there anything we didn't cover that you want people to know? And then also how, how did they find you? Yeah. Um, well, maybe just a little bit about what we're up to right now. Um, this past April, we launched virtual care across the country. And so we are here for patients everywhere. Um, and we also have some large national contracts with insurance companies. So hopefully, um, you know, there's some more affordable access for folks. Um, we're going to be at 20 clinics at the end of this year, which is insane since we wow, launched in 2020. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and so obviously, you know, I can vouch for our clinical team, but definitely meet different types of providers. I think virtual is, whether it's with us or someone else, a really, really great starting point. Um, and people think like, oh, how do you do p physical therapy virtually? How do you do pelvic floor PT virtually? And again, um, the outcomes can be really, really powerful if you're not relying on someone, you know, just for manual therapy and you're doing a lot of that work yourself. I did all of my postpartum recovery virtually and it was, you know, a game changer for me. So regardless of who it's with, um, thinking about just starting um, through some care paradigm can be really, really powerful. Um, so I would say that. And then just maybe as a first, you know, PSA to everyone, um, if you did not know you had a pelvic floor before this conversation, go online. We have a free guide on our website. Like just learn a little bit about your body because I assure you at some point in your life, you're going to have something that's going to feel off <laughs> down there. Um, and just having that baseline information beforehand can really alleviate like the stress and scariness of what those issues are. Um, so say hello to your pelvic floor. Yes, I love that. I love that. If if one person learned that they had a pelvic floor today, we succeeded. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on here and for, for giving us your time. I'm really excited for, uh, or I'm really you know, just grateful for the work that you're doing in this space. Well, thank you. And thank you for elevating this conversation. It's so important. And I'm really glad that you're tackling all aspects of, you know, health for, for multiple genders. So thank you, Amanda. Uh -huh.